Hey, good morning, Forest Park. This is our third part of our continuing series, Turn It Off. Today is going to be so good. Okay, anyway, uh, it'll, it'll, get, it'll, it'll get better, I promise. Before we jump into it, I have two requests for you today. Number one, stay with me the entire message. I've got a lot to give you, and you have my permission before we get started to rib, pinch, poke, prod anyone close to you who isn't paying attention or begins to snore. So if you want to go ahead and practice that right now, go right ahead, get your pinchers ready to go, get your pokers out, right? And number two, provide me grace for not having much scripture until the end of the message. Then I'm going to give you a lot. You're going to see how it's all tied together. But as we lay this foundation today, I'm not going to get into a lot of Scripture. Then at the end, we'll pull it together and you'll see how it all hopefully connects well. All right, let's go. Ethan Cross in his book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It, records the following story. Cross writes, the first wild pitch seemed like a fluke. It was October 3rd, 2000, game one between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Atlanta Braves in the first round of the National League playoffs. The Cardinal pitcher, Rick Ankeel, watched the ball he had just thrown bounce off the ground past his catcher and then hit the backstop. As the runner on first jogged the second, the crowd made a sound of modest, almost supportive surprise. He was, after all, playing on his home turf at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, but there was no reason for him to think that his wild pitch foretold any shift in the balance of the inning. In baseball, pitches occasionally get away from even the best pitchers, never mind the fact that Ankeel wasn't just any picture, pitcher. When he was drafted right out of high school, a 17-year-old with a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, scouts and commentators believed Ankeel had the potential to be one of the best pitchers the game had seen in decades. Ankeel tried to forget the wild pitch. It was an anomaly for him, and there was nothing to worry about. And yet a prickly nettle of a thought lodged itself in his mind as he gathered himself on the mound. Man, he said to himself. I just threw a wild pitch on national TV. Moments later, after reading the signs from his catcher, Ankeel uncoiled his explosive left-handed windup and threw another wild pitch. The crowd ooed a bit louder and longer this time, as if sensing something were off. The runner on second ran to third base as his catcher retrieved the ball again and the seconds passed beneath the afternoon sun. He felt his mind slipping out of control and into the hands of what he would later call the monster, his cruel inner critic, a stream of verbal thoughts so vicious they could undo years of hard work, its voice louder than the 52,000 fans in the stand. Anxiety, panic, fear, his own immense vulnerability, a young player with everything on the line, was something he could no longer ignore. Still, he was determined to rally. He narrowed his focus in on his weight, on his stance, on his arm. All he had to do was make the machinery of his windup click into place. Then he wound up again and threw another wild pitch. And another, and another. Before the Cardinals gave up any more runs, Ankeel was pulled out of the game. He disappeared into the dugout accompanied by the monster inside him. 
When Enkiel was called on to pitch against the Mets, nine days later, the same thing happened. The monster reappeared, and he threw more wild pitches. Once again, he was pulled from the mound, this time before the first inning was even over. At the start of the following season, Ankiel pitched a few more games during which he had to drink alcohol to stay his nerves before taking the field. But even the liquor couldn't help calm his mind. His pitching didn't improve. He was sent to the minors where he spent a dispiriting three years before deciding to retire from baseball in 2005 at the tragically premature age, 25. I can't do this anymore, he told his coach. Rick Ankiel would never pitch professionally again. Now, I want you to think about the power of the little voice inside our heads. Here's a man, prime of his life, highly skilled, professionally trained, top of his game, loved by scores of people, young, healthy, the world in front of him, brought down not by a disease, not by a drug addiction, not by tragedy, brought down, stopped, undermined by a little voice inside his head. Everyone around him encouraged him. Coaches, leaders, fellow players, fans. History was on his side. He had won and won and won plenty of other times. Yet the voice in his head ripped it all from him, leaving him utterly despondent, discouraged, and defeated. Listen to me very carefully. There are some of you sitting in this room, some of you watching online, you are considering walking away from your dreams. You're, you're thinking about calling it quits, giving up, dialing it in because there is a little voice in your head that will not shut up. Others of you have made some of the most destructive and foolish decisions because you followed the wrong little voice inside your head. There are a few others who are considering something right now and you question whether it's wise. Maybe it's going back to that thing, whatever that thing is, that substance, that person, that habit, that vice, and you wonder, eh, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. And the reason you're reconsidering is because the voice in your head will not stop chattering. The voices in our head are as unique and as different as people are. In fact, we went around this room, and I asked you, hey, tell me about the voices in your head. What do, what do they say to you? How do they speak to you? We would hear about all kinds of different voices, and we would be shocked at how much influence that little voice has over our moods, our behaviors, our decisions, and the overall direction of our lives. Last week, we talked through how to turn down the voices from our past. We dismantled three common lies of our past. Lie number one, I am my past. That's a lie. You're not your past. Lie number two, I'll repeat my past. Well, you might, but you don't have to. And then lie number three, I can't repair my past. Well, you can't go back in time, but there are some things you can do to make your past much better or at least leave a better future for you. That was last week. Today, I want to focus on how the voice in our present right here, right now, can seriously trip us up and how to calm it down, how to turn the volume down. All right, let's get to it. Now, today, I'm going to ask and answer three questions for you. Three questions about the little voice and how to stop it from being so damaging in our present-day lives. And I'm going to give you the three questions up front. 
all right? A few reasons. First, some of you will go to sleep, so I figured I'd be better give it to you now so that you'll, you'll catch it. Second, some of you will decide whether to go to sleep or not based on the questions, and I want you to be able to make a good decision. And then third, some of you will leave early so you can go home and go to sleep, and so I, I don't want you to miss out on just because it's almost nap time, all right? So I'm going to give you the three questions up front, then we're going to unpack them. Question number one, why does our inner voice matter? Why does it matter? Question number two, where do we get our inner voice? And then the million-dollar question we all want to know, how do we go about changing our inner voice? And I promise you, the third point is where we're, it's going to be most helpful and I think most interesting. You say, well, can't you just get to the third point, skip the other two? No, I want to keep you guessing, right? All right. And I want to get your, your money's worth, right? All right. Question number one, why does my inner voice matter? Well, first of all, because my inner voice has a lot to say. Dr. Ethan Cross writes this. He says, our verbal stream of thought is so industrious that according to one study, we internally talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute out loud. Now, put that in perspective. Consider that contemporary American president's State of the Union address, the State of the Union speech he gives, normally runs about 6,000 words and lasts about one hour. So our brain packs nearly the same verbiage into a mere 60 seconds. That's how fast the inner voice can talk to you. This means that if we're awake for 16 hours on any given day, at, and most of us are, and our inner voice is active only about half the time, we can theoretically be treated to about 320 State of the Union addresses each day. The voice in your head is a very fast talker. In fact, many of you have already spoken more words to yourself this morning than you did to your spouse all last week. Second, your inner voice matters because your inner voice is on 24-7. In a few minutes, I'm going to stop talking. The chatter in the lobby will die out. If you go home today and watch something on Netflix or Prime or whatever your preferred channel and you watch a movie or a show, it'll eventually go away. The songs stop, the conversations with your family and friends end, but the voice in your head keeps going. Even when you're asleep, your brain continues to process conversations and events, your calendar, unfinished business. It's one reason you dream. Your brain is attempting to make sense of what is happening in your head, tying up all the loose ends, creating a story in your mind. It never stops. Then whatever has your attention 24-7 and never shuts up has the greatest influence on shaping and molding and making you think what you think, feel what you feel, and do what you do. So, why does your inner voice matter? That's why. Number two, where do I get my inner voice? Well, initially, your voice is shaped and formed, at least the raw materials, from your personality. Yes, humans are similar, but we are also vastly unique. And your personality goes a long way toward creating the voices you hear. Some of us are more critical than others. That's just who we are. We see with a critical eye. We evaluate everything. We give it a rating. We like some things more than others. Other people are not nearly as critical as you are. Their personality is different. Some of us are more encouraging. When you fall down, the voice immediately says, get back up, you lazy bum, you know. It encourages you to get up and try harder. Some of us are more melancholy than others. We're prone to depression a little bit more than other people are. So our personality plays a big role in the creation of that voice that talks to us. Next, 
or your family. Those who had authority over you when you were children play a huge role in forming and shaping your inner voice, your dad, your mom, your grandparents, or your, your coach, or your teacher, someone in authority over you who was surrounding you. They, they played a big role in shaping and molding and sanding down that voice in your head. If your father was critical and difficult to please, if your mother complained and rarely found joy in the simple things of life, then the chances are quite high that your inner voice is critical, difficult to please, and rarely finds joy in life. Because where did that voice come from? It was instilled in us through our personality and also shaped and molded by our family and also our friends. Huge influence. We select our friends and then our friends shape us. What they talk about, what they laugh about, what they cry about, what they celebrate, what they reject, what they make fun of, what they love, goes a long way toward forming and molding the inner voices we hear for the rest of our lives. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just giving you some high points here. But the third piece, last piece I'm going to give you to answer this question, where does it come from, is a huge piece, and that is our beliefs. What we believe matters. And our beliefs influence our inner voice greatly. Think about this with me. Whether you see the world as a good place or a bad place changes how your voice talks to you. If people are moral or evil, if you are a victim or an overcomer, if love or success is most important, if God is real and if he is, what is he like? And did he give us his son, Jesus Christ, to bring truth and bring us into light? Is that true? Is it not true? How we see people who are poor, how we see people who are rich and powerful, how we view politics, how we view our place in the world. Do justice and mercy win in the end or is everything belonging to fate and chance? How you answer those questions, how you position yourself in the world changes that little voice inside of your head. What you believe matters greatly and it shapes and it forms the voices. You see, if you see the world as a good place, filled with good people, and you believe you have a lot to offer and there's plenty of room for you to offer it and God is real and he is good and he is benevolent and you are loved and so is everyone else and you can add value to people and that is the most important thing, more important than collecting expensive toys, then your voice will fall in line with your beliefs. For you, the world will be filled with sunlight and you will see people as opportunities to love and to serve and you will think that difficult situations are just bumps in the road. Overall, your voice will be positive and encouraging and loving. But if you see the world as a wicked place filled with evil people on every corner and you believe you don't have much to offer the world and you're just kind of a victim of whatever happened, you know, around you or you, you got to, you know, cut your way in this world and step on other people to get there if you have to and, and, and God may or may not be real and if he is, then he's distant and unknowable and love is merely a feeling that you feel and the most important things in this world are material goods and not the fleeting feelings of love and joy, then your voice will fall in line with your beliefs too. For you, the world will be filled with clouds, and you will consider people merely opportunities for you to get ahead, and difficult situations suck because they're in your way to what it is you want out of life, and overall, your voice will be negative and harsh and cold. So where do we get our voices? Our birth, personality, our family and friends, and our beliefs. Now, you can't do a whole lot about your personality. It was installed when you were born. It is what it is. You can do a little bit more about your family and your friends. You didn't choose your mom and dad. You didn't choose your siblings, but you don't have to keep allowing them to influence you. You can put in some boundaries, and you can walk away from some friends, and you can walk towards some other friends. So you got a little bit more control of that. But as far as the third one, and listen to me very carefully, 
you are completely in control of what you choose to believe. You are completely in control of how you see the world and how you look at people and how you look at yourself in it and how you see God and whether he's present or he's not present. Yes, your parents influenced your beliefs. Yes, so did your friends. But you got to take responsibility for what you choose to believe today. Now, the million-dollar question, right? How do we change men or voice? Huge question. It's impossible to answer this question thoroughly within a few minutes. This is just an introduction. The subjects, I encourage you to discuss it among yourselves. Pray with, through this. Meditate through this. Use scripture to reflect on this. If you need a therapist, get a therapist. Get into small groups and talk about it. On and on. Today, I can only open your mind and open your heart, and you need to carry it further. So how do I change my inner voice? There are probably a long list of things. There's a long list. But I'm going to give you two colossal pieces of truth. And yes, I use the word colossal because I want to emphasize it. Two, one thing you must stop and one thing you must start. Stop, first of all, stop ruminating on your past and disappointment. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I'm going to help you. What I'm getting ready to give you is gold. It will change your entire life if you will listen and follow. What do I mean by ruminating? That means thinking deeply about something, reflecting on it, meditating on what happened, when it happened, who did what, why did they do it, turning it over and over and over in your head. Stop. Stop ruminating on the pain and the hurt and the disappointment and the betrayal and the things that people did to you. Now, before I go any further and explain why it is essential that you stop doing this, you need to know this about me. For years, and I mean years, no one could out-ruminate me. I was the ruminating king. I still am prone to it. Man, I replayed conversations what he said, what she said, what I should have said, how I felt when he said what he said, why I felt the way I felt when she said what she said, and what I should have done here and what I should have done there. And I have an imaginative mind, folks. Graphic mind, dramatic mind, clear and detailed mind. So it's like a movie playing again and again and again in my head, and I used it a lot. I would have imaginary conversations in my head. And I would lay out crystal clear, airtight arguments, and I would put people in their place, and I would prove beyond any reasonable doubt why I was right. Anybody like that? Okay, good, good, good. I would replay what all this happened, and I would say, well, you know what? I should have said this, and if I'd have said that, then they would have this, and then I would have that and this, and I'd, I'm right, and, and anybody would ask, hey, listen, you want to know my story? I, let, me, let me tell you my side of the story. Let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you, I mean, ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. So when I say stop ruminating over what happened to you, your pain, your disappointment, your trauma, your betrayal, your heartbreak. I speak from experience, and I have the emotional scars to prove it. Let me explain why this is essential. I want to set up a little kind of silly, lighthearted situation here, and I want you to take it and apply it to your life, and you're going to see how all this ties into the wisdom of Scripture. I want you to imagine with me 
that you are asked to give a public presentation, maybe at your job. Let's, let's imagine it's a 10-minute speech at a special lunch for someone who's retiring, okay? So you work on that speech until it's exactly how you want it. And when it's your turn, you step up and you give it your best. And when you're done, you feel pretty good. You're happy with how it turned out. You're relieved that it's over. People give you an applause and you feel pretty good. When the lunch is finished, people are beginning to file out. They form a little line and you're kind of at the door and saying goodbye to people. And person after person compliments you. I mean, they tell you how well you did. And every time someone compliments you, you just feel better and better about the speech you gave. Then you notice the person who spoke at last year's luncheon, about three or four people behind, and she's coming toward you. And you remember her speech that she gave last year because it was amazing. Like she knocked it out of the park. In fact, it had a huge impact on you when you heard the speech. And you went up to her last year at the end and you said to her, wow, you did a fantastic job. I really enjoyed it. In fact, you complimented her on two different occasions for the speech she gave. And when she approaches you, she looks at you and she says, hey, how are you? Good to see you. And she walks out. No compliment, no thank you, no praise, nothing. And when you go home, all you can think of is that interaction. You think about it and you dwell on it and you wonder why she didn't compliment you. All these other people complimented you. Why didn't she compliment you? And you play it back and you play it back in your mind and you start asking, well, did I bomb? Were other people just being nice to me? I mean, maybe it was horrible. Then you have a thought. No, it wasn't horrible. She's just jealous. I did better than her. How petty can she be? She doesn't want to compliment me because she is a jealous, petty person. And you get up the next morning and you think about it some more. And you see someone in the coffee shop who looks a lot like her and you think about that situation again. And you say to yourself, when I see her in the office, I am going to smile and I'm going to hold my head up and I will not let a petty, petty, jealous person get me down. And you get to work. And you see her across the way and your heart races and your palms get sweaty and you think, there she is. There's that petty, jealous, unable to compliment anyone who is better than she is. Poor loser. Plus, her hair looks stupid today. <laughs> what are you doing? You are ruminating. Now, I int intentionally chose something kind of lighthearted and silly. But you can see how this would apply to so many interactions in our lives especially traumatic situations. Listen carefully. This is going to help. When your coworker in the story didn't compliment you after your speaker in the story didn't teach, you felt disappointed. When you thought about it later that evening, you felt disappointed again. When you awakened the next morning, you felt disappointed by her again. When you thought about it on your way to work and saw someone who looked like her in the coffee shop, you felt disappointed by her again. And when you saw her across the office, you felt disappointed by her again. In the world in which we all live, this world, the world where water and computers and tables and phones exist, the world in which we live and breathe, how many times did she disappoint you? One time. In the world created with your ruminating mind, how many times did she disappoint you? Five. Now take the story that I created here and apply it to any and all situations of your life. 
the woman, whoever she is, is a five-time offender in your mind. She wounded you. She ignored you. She refused to compliment you five different times. Each time you ruminate on what happened to you, what he said, what she said, what they didn't do, what they didn't say, you, in essence, reoffend yourself over and over and over again. And when someone sits down and you rehash what happened, you hurt yourself again. When you feel badly and you replay the events in your mind, you conjure up all the memories and all the emotions come with it and you reoffend yourself again. When you feel angry and you tell your side of the story to your spouse one more time, you've created the situation and you've wounded yourself again. When you see the person on social media or in town somewhere and you just have to tell the story again and you think through all the details again, you reoffend yourself again. When you bring up the memories of what happened and you ruminate on them, you conjure up the emotions associated with all the memories and you violate yourself over and over again. So your brain doesn't know it isn't happening again. Your brain thinks this person is hurting you again and again and again. And when you see them, you hate them. It's why family and friends' drama often grows through the years. It's why some of us can't move on from what happened five years ago. Each time you tell the story to another person, it's as if it's happening all over again. See, in the world of pain and trauma and unforgiveness and all the things, there is no time. It's all very much present. Each time you tell it, it's fresh. It's why, it's why someone finally says to you, dude, that's been five years ago. Let it go. And you get angry and hurt over their comment. You know why? Because in your mind, in your world of rumination, it just happened. It's still fresh. It's all very much present. It's one reason some people can't move beyond their first marriage or their second failure or their church hurt or whatever. They injure themselves again and again and again. In their world, the trauma is still happening. The betrayal was just the other day. The ex-friend is still causing pain. They've moved on. You haven't. Stop ruminating. Want some scriptures? Some of you are like, yes, it's about time. Romans 12. If possible, if possible, if possible, if possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Keep your accounts short. Deal with the pain now. Don't let it sit. sit. Because, because if, if it, it sits, sits, it will sour. Deal with it now to the best of your ability. And I love the wisdom of Paul here because he says, to the best of your ability. Folks, you know there are some people that it doesn't matter what you do, you ain't ever going to be at peace with them. You've done everything you can and they still don't like you, don't want you, kick you out of their life, reject you, betray you. That's why Paul says, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. 
Watch this. I said this last week, Matthew 5. Therefore, if you bring your, your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar and go. Stop the singing. Stop the worshiping. Stop the clapping. Stop the note-taking. Stop everything and go to that brother. Go to that sister. Make it right. First, make things right with your brother or sister. Then come back and offer up your gift. You know why? Because relationships trump religion. Relationships are more important than the singing and the note-taking and the clapping and the crying and the emotion. If you're at disharmony with people, that's so much more important that you go make that right than that you sing the right song. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone. It's not about embarrassing them. It's not about humiliating them. It's about going to them when they've sinned against you and it's obvious that they've actually done something wrong. Go to them. Go to them. If they listen to you, you've won over your brother or sister. This is not at all about embarrassing people, humiliating people, calling their sins out. It's about winning your brother or sister back. Why? Relationships trump everything else. Don't let it sit. Don't let it sour. Do not let it sit and sour. Deal with it right now, right now, right now. Don't ruminate, ruminate, ruminate. Stop. Colossians 3.13, be tolerant with each other. And if someone has a complaint against anyone, what should we do? Forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also you forgive one another. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Why? Relationships matter. Don't let it sit and sour. Deal with the pain. Deal with the offense. Deal with the tension. Don't let it sit there because if you let it sit, it'll get worse and worse and worse and worse. And I love this passage. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't provide an opportunity to the devil. What provides the opportunity? Time. Don't even let it go 24 hours. Deal with it so quickly that it will not even go over a day. Why? Because it's in that time, that empty space where we start ruminating. It's in that empty space that the root of bitterness starts in our heart and begins to grow and the harvest is death. Deal with it, deal with it, deal with it. Don't even go to sleep until you've dealt with it. It's the rush of it. The hurry of it. Stop ruminating. Now, there's something to start, and this is going to be brief. I won't keep you here too much longer, just until I'm done. Okay, I promise. As soon as I'm done, you're good to go. Start reimagining your past pain and disappointment. Stop ruminating and start reimagining. Now, listen. Listen, listen. This is very brief, but powerful. Life's greatest lessons arrive on the back of life's greatest pains. To the foolish, pain and disappointment, heartache and betrayal rise no higher than the emotions. And the foolish become bitter, angry, and cynical. 
but to the wise. Those difficult seasons are life's greatest teachers. It's in the furnace of pain and sorrow and weeping where their hearts are purified, their character refined, their vision cleared, and their spine straightened. And often the only difference between the foolish and the wise is how they look at their seasons of pain. Often the only difference between the foolish and the wise, which way you go, is how they look at their seasons of pain. You see, you can't do anything much about your personality. Not a whole lot you can do about your family. Some things you can do about your friends, a lot actually. But how you look at this world, that's on you. Last verse. James 1, my brothers and sisters, everybody say that word with me. Think. Think of the various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. You are going to have to think of them differently. One translation says, consider it all joy. Another translation says, consider it an opportunity. A lot of translations say, count it all joy. You know what that means? Assign it to the side of joy. When you're looking at things in your life, you assign them into different categories. When you get into a painful situation, when you get into a bitter, uh, a, a bitter moment, when you get into a season of despondent that's hurtful, you're going to have to do something with it. You're going to have to assign it somewhere. You're going to assign it to the side of, I'm a victim. You must assign it to the category of that's just the way life is and I'm always the one under the thumb of of, of life. You're going to have to assign it somewhere. So Paul says when you go through those tough times, when you go through those hurtful times, when you go through those difficult times, count it joyful. Assign it to the category of joy. Why? Because you know, you know, you know, watch this, after all you know, not you feel, you know. It's cerebral in a lot of ways. It's how you see things. It's how you assign things. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Life's greatest lessons arrive on life's greatest pains on the back of them. You know that the the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let this endurance, you know what that is? A choice. Let this endurance complete its work so that you may be fully mature Complete and lacking in nothing. How you view what happens to you changes everything. You either see yourself as a victim or a victor, as being overcome or as an overcomer. So, Why does my inner voice matter so much? Because it speaks more than anyone else and it rarely shuts up. Where does my inner voice come from? My personality, I have little to no control over that. My family and friends, I have a little bit more control over my friends than I do my family, but I can put some boundaries in place even with my family and my beliefs. I have the most control over what I choose to believe and where I choose to assign the things of my life 
And how do I change my inner voice? So much can be said here. But today, concentrate on this. Stop ruminating about your past and hurt and start reimagining your past hurt as opportunities for you to learn and grow. Well, that's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you because you do not leave us in our pain. You give us a direction. You give us a way out. Thank you that when we feel as if our world is caving in around us, that we can run to the wisdom of your word. We can run to the collected wisdom of your body. And we can find hope for this day and the day after. Father, there's a lot of pain I know in this room and in the service previous. That pain comes in the form of past mistakes, vices that we find ourselves in, sins that we commit, financial pain and problems, marital issues. It comes in a variety of different ways. To live in this world means to live and experience some pain and trauma. But you do not leave us alone. Teach us what it means to not allow the root of bitterness to take place, to not ruminate on these things over and over, but to start reimagining all of it and come to you with an open heart and an open mind and say, God, here I am with all my mess and all my hurt. Bring healing to me and teach me what it means to keep short accounts. Teach me what it means to forgive. Teach me what it means to live a life that is free. Let this truth today find its place inside of us and set us completely and totally free. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh yeah, there we go. Amen. Guys, it's just a very intentional message, right? All this stuff about capturing your inner voices and dealing with them is something that we're called to do intentionally. It's not something that just happens in the midst of doing life. And that's why Paul says to take every thought captive and be intentional with turning those inner voices down and reimagining what's new. Got three quick announcements for you before we let you go. Number one is if you're new here or you've been coming for a while, but we've yet to connect with you, we'd love to get to know you, answer your questions. There should be a new here card, a physical one in the seat back pocket in front of you. Um, fill it out, drop it by the new here area, or you can go to fplive.org slash connect. Pastor Scott prefers you to do the virtual one. It's easier to read. Uh, some of your handwritings are very bad. Um, but again, we're excited that you're here. We'd love to connect with you. We have a free gift for you. So if you stop by the new here area after service, we'd love to connect with you, answer your questions, and give you a free gift. If your parents are little ones and you don't have time because you got to go pick them up, your new gift is on the black uh, table in the corner in the adventure hallway. So feel free to get that on your way out. Number two is baptism is coming up. And two weeks. We're going to be baptizing here at Forest Park Church at our 11 a.m. service. We're super excited about bringing the baptism back into uh, the service and being able to celebrate it together during the service. We have five people signed up right now. I'm going to be baptizing three of my students that day, so I'm super excited about it. You can clap for my three students, I guess. <laughs> 
But again, we want to invite you to consider being baptized. If you've not been baptized since you believe, that's what we always say at Forest Park, your next step in your faith journey is to get baptized. That is your next step. So if you would say, I have not been baptized since I chose to become a Christ follower, then I would say you need to consider being baptized in two weeks. It's as simple as going to that link, fplive.org slash baptism. That's where we keep all the information about what we believe about baptism as well. Or you can text baptism to 833-310-5368. We would love to baptize you in two weeks here. Bring your family, bring your friends. We're all going to celebrate as you take your next step in faith. So we're super excited about it. And last but not least is Easter is coming up in like five weeks. So it's super close. Um, It's the last day of March this year. I don't know why Easter can't be the same day every year. But anyway, March 31st is Easter. We're going to have it at Forest Park 9 and 11. That's not the important part. Not only are we excited about it, but we're excited for you to consider inviting people to come with you to Easter at Forest Park. If you have neighbors, coworkers, family that don't go anywhere, this is a perfect opportunity to invite them to church because everybody goes to Easter right? Everyone who doesn't go to church, they come at least for Easter. This is a great opportunity for someone in your life to bring them to Forest Park, invite them to come be a part as we celebrate the resurrection together. We're super excited to do that in just five short weeks. It's coming up, 9 and 11, just like always. Guys, we love you. Thanks for being here. If you have any questions about anything, find me or any staff member in the hallway afterwards. Have a great Sunday.